Hello everyone, welcome to episode three of The Rebound. My name is Connor Southwell and today we're going to be taking a look at probably the most exciting part of a preview that you can look at, which is recruitment. I'm delighted to be joined by Ram from Market Insights. Um, I'm, I'm going to leave him to introduce himself, but essentially he is, um, well, how, how would you define yourself, I guess, Ram? It seems like a, rather than me give you a, a nice introduction, it's probably better for you to sum up exactly what, what you and, and, and your company does. Well, I am co-founder of a data football data consultancy named Market Insights. We were founded just over a year ago, so the end of July 2019. And what we help football clubs do is we help them make the best use of the data that is either available to them exclusively or uh, available via public feeds. So we turn the data available to them into the best insights possible that would help aid their decision making and drive various processes ranging from recruitment to performance analysis and long-term planning as well. And, and to name a, a couple of the clubs you work with, you work with uh, Tampa Bay Rowdy, so I know Norwich City have a, a partnership with, of course, in, in America, but yeah. also Swansea City as well, don't you? Yeah, that's right. We, we have worked with Swansea and Tampa Bay Rowdies. We do work with other clubs within the EFL at the moment in all the divisions of the EFL and a couple of others outside of England as well, which we're not allowed to name for reasons that you will understand. But yeah, so far, so far so good, I suppose. Yeah, it's, it's certainly, uh, it certainly looks good as well. And um, I, I, I've uh, sort of followed your work on, on social media for the last couple of years and it's been uh, Really excellent to see uh, you guys grow. I mean, there's, there's a little collection of you, isn't there? I know that there's uh, <laughs> uh, the guy who runs uh, Blade Analytics as well. I'm sure most people are familiar with it. It's um, an excellent account to, to do with football generally, but, but equally football sort of uh, analysis and data. Um, and, and, you know, as, as I said at the top of the show, it seems no one better really to, to get to talk about some of these Norwich City recruits that, um, well, we all know by now following Norwich City, the way that they recruit probably isn't going after names that, people are all too familiar with. So to get some insight into those is, is going to be really useful, I think, for, for Norwich City fans and anyone watching this. But saying that, um, I, I just want you to, to start, before we go in and sort of um, sort of unpick the Norwich City signing this summer, really, to, to speak about data use in football and how clubs use it to, in terms of recruitment. Because I know that um, when I spoke to Kieran Scott, for example, who's the head of recruitment at Norwich, and Stuart Webber's yeah. also spoken about this in the past, um, it's not simply just relying on data, isn't it? It's interpreting it in, in a certain way and using it as a tool rather than sort of using it to um, make an opinion of a player, I guess. It forms that opinion rather than is the opinion. Yeah, that's right. So there's um, there's a concept that is widely debated, but there's a there's a school of thought that I subscribe to that says... Data is not exactly objective. At the end of the day, data is what someone is recording in terms of location and position. It may not be entirely objective. And objectivity itself in data is basically just a point of maximum convergence. So an objective opinion of a player, for example, to me or to you would probably be what maybe 200 other people from various spheres and allegiances are saying about the player. That may be an objective opinion, the convergence of all of that. So data is probably closest to the convergence of objectivity that you might get about the player, because at the end of the day, there is some amount of subjectivity in it in terms of someone is actually logging it. And that's how, that's how we get to see the data. 
but I'd say that data helps tell you the least subjective story about the player. So if data is used as a point of reference, I feel as if it helps makes make, it helps make a process a lot more efficient in the sense that obviously live scouting is of utmost importance to any recruitment team. But in order to use and channel one's resources in the most efficient manner possible, it's always good to know which players are performing well in certain metrics that you're looking at, and then to perhaps divert your scouts to go to those games so that they, they kind of know whom they're supposed to be looking at. That's one angle of it. The other angle is your scout has given you a report on a certain player, and it may not have been very good in the two or three matches that he watched live, but the data tells you that over a period of maybe 3,000, 4,000 minutes, a player is actually doing a certain thing better than what the scout may have reported over the duration of those few games. So then you might want to look further into that and maybe not be deterred by those few scouting reports. So I guess to put it simply, data helps cast the net on players a lot wider when it comes to recruitment. So that could be in terms of ruling out a player in terms of having watched him a few times and been unimpressed because maybe he was just underperforming in that stretch of games or in those circumstances. So it costs the net wider in terms of being able to assess a player's performance over a wider range of matches and conditions because data comes from all of those games. And also in terms of leaks that you're looking at because unless you have like an insanely large scouting network, then you're probably going to have to monitor a lot of leaks in terms of data. And then once you flagged up the interesting players, then send, send your scouts out to watch those games or those teams. So yeah, so data helps expand your range. It helps tell the least subjective story about the player. And it also helps gauge with more precision perhaps how well a player might fit your team's style of play. I mean, obviously this is assessed with the, with the eyes as well because there are intangibles, lots of intangibles that you have to pick up. For example, uh, data doesn't tell us much about how good a defender's positioning is, does it? It tells you how many tackles a defender's made or clearances, interceptions, things like that. But then beyond the point, you need to, you need to watch and assess uh, how a defender acquits his body shape in terms of a defensive duel or an aerial duel and possession, uh, I mean, positioning, uh, things like recovery runs. So obviously a lot, of, a lot of things need to be assessed by eye. So the marriage of that and data, uh, insofar as what I've just described to you, is probably, it's, it's literally the best way a recruitment department could be run. Yeah, I, I know that um, particularly around the signing of Emi Buendia, who, who obviously is, is a bit more well-known now than he was before he came to Norwich City. Um, that's yeah. very much something you say. He was, he was on loan, a, uh, I think, a, a low, lower league team in, in the Spanish second tier who were yeah. sort of on the cusp of relegation. And, and Norwich sort of located the fact, well, he, he was highlighted because of certain elements of his data was, was quite good. And then it was only then that Norwich sent out a, a scout to go and watch him a few times before deciding to sign him. That seems to be almost like a, a common theme in Norwich's recruitment. But I guess my wider question is, is that something that we're now seeing in football generally? Or is, is that 
sort of only a few or a select handful of clubs, I guess, sort of adopting that approach? Because I know that um, I saw a quote from, I'm sure you've seen it as well, from Neil Warnock fairly recently about his analysts uh, picking up certain players um, that perhaps he didn't agree with. And I'm, I, I'm sort of paraphrasing, but the quote's uh, available somewhere. But is that something you're seeing more of, sort of teams combine the two in terms of sort of the conventional scouting, I guess, of actually going out and watching players and sort of the, the analytics and the data side of it? Hundred percent. I think, I think it's something that is going to be burgeoning in the coming few years, because once a team like Brentford and a team like Norwich has made some signings that may have been influenced by data at some stage of the decision-making process, and they've obviously had success. I mean, Brentford have had success in obviously turning players to profit and working very well within their means. Norwich have obviously gotten promoted and kept themselves in a financially good situation. So once there is, I mean, now that some sort of precedent has been established for using data and doing it well, obviously there's Liverpool at the highest level, but they are a club with absolutely massive means in terms of infrastructure and capability to hire staff and so on and so forth. But but as far as I've observed from what I know about the way certain clubs League one and big twos are working. I think there's definitely an upward trend in the use of data to flag up players. And I think it's only going to become more prominent. And I feel as if this might be further heightened by the situation surrounding COVID-19 because people may not be able to go out and watch players with the same freeness of freedom of movement that they had prior to COVID-19 because of restriction in terms of borders and changing situations in countries, so on and so forth. But what I'm saying is the need now is more than ever for all of these processes to be more streamlined, more efficient, and for clubs to get the best deals uh, as they can. And domestically, obviously, now, if people cannot go outside and recruit, I mean, and scout foreign leagues as extensively as they could before because of the situation of the world at the moment, that may mean that there is a greater demand overall for players within the English footballing pyramid. So, for example, a club like Lincoln City, who uh, just went and signed a player from the Dutch second division based on, I think, 10 games of video and a very glowing data report. Or, or so says Michael Appleton on not the Top 20 podcast. I think you might see more clubs going out and doing something like that. They may they may not be as hard and fast on needing to watch a player live like five times, as opposed to having a really good data report and watching 10, 15 games on video thoroughly and having character references and such. But yeah, I think it's just it's just going to be something that will keep growing in the industry in the coming years and. There are examples lower down the league as well. You look at Coventry City. I was just, mm. I was just gushing over the recruitment again today when they signed Leo Skiri Ostergaard from Brighton and Hove Albion. We, I watched him a lot for St. Pauli last season, and I think he will do very well. And uh, there, there are other signings of as well. Gustavo Hammer, who came in from Breda in the Eredivisie, Hilsner, who came from the third division in Germany. I think um, they are clearly, they are clearly looking outside the 
the usual scope the teams within the EFL look within. And I think that they play they play amazing football. And if they have success with these signings that they're bringing in, it's only going to be it's only going to be heightened. And heck, it doesn't even have to be someone from from abroad. Someone like Michael Rose, you take a chance from someone who has amazing data in the Scottish Championship. Um, he's obviously going to be a hot commodity in the EFL market in the next year or two. Uh, Dan Harvey, who just signed for MK Dons, that's someone to keep an eye on. So yes, data is going to help clubs in numerous ways. And I don't see why they would not at least bring data to be one of the points of convergence to contest a traditional opinion, such as one carried by Neil Warnock. I mean, ultimately, if Neil Warnock decides to veto a player based on the fact that he doesn't like them within watching them for five minutes, so to, I mean, so to quote him, that that's fine. But then at least they've cast the net of players wider using data, and they have they've at least presented themselves with a with more options rather than just restricting themselves at an initial stage. If you get if you catch my drift, so. Yes, there are lots of examples, uh, and I feel as if it's only, yeah, in League Two as well. There's Forest Screen Rovers who sign players who have been doing very well on data. Plymouth just advertised for the data science scientist job, and have been working with Twenty First Club. Uh, that's been well documented. So keep an eye out, I suppose. Mm, yeah, I, I, the Coventry City reference there is really interesting because um, I think Chris Badlin is involved in in, in their recruitment team, and he. Oh, actually moved across with Stuart Webber to Norwich initially before he, he took that Coventry job. So it's been quite interesting to see almost the parallels between the, the sort of types of players that they're bringing in and, and Norwich are bringing in. So that sort of leads me to Norwich quite nicely and, and sort of Stuart Webber. And uh, I want to sort of, before we delve into to this window in particular, just in his signings at Norwich as, as an overview and, and sort of trends we, we know the German market in particular has, has been one that they've, they've shopped in quite heavily and, and found a lot of value in um, for example before he came to the club I don't think they'd had a single German player and now they've well I, I couldn't count how many they've had it's, uh, it's, it's certainly much more but we've seen it this window as well in terms of how wide they have cast the net and um, even though there are a few sort of more domestic signings in there this window it's been um, a little bit different in that regard we're still seeing those players who to me come across as ones that have done very well in terms of data. Um, but in terms of Stuart Webber, Kieran Scott, since they've been at the club, what have you made of, of Norwich City's recruitment? Because it was very successful in the season they went up from the Championship, but last year actually it was probably a little bit more difficult for them. Yeah, I think overall it's been, it's been superb. There's no, no contesting that. Um, initially when they came in, the signings that Norwich made in the wake of Daniel Farker's in the wake of his second season. So when Buendia and Hernandez and the likes came in, just generally, I noticed two clear trends, one of which was picking up players who did very well on data in, at the time, undervalued leagues, such as uh, Buendia obviously was playing, albeit on loan, he was playing at a side struggling in the second division. And Onel Hernandez was playing the Schweider Bundesliga, which at the time wasn't as popular, despite, you know, Huddersfield's exploits. But, so obviously that, that was one trend, picking up players who have been performing well on data in slightly lesser known leagues. The other was, there was a trend of players coming in who had been very undervalued. For example, Mario Vrancic. He was at Darmstadt, but I think he was someone who showed a lot of initial promise at one point in his career and didn't quite take off for him. He'd been around a bit, I think, um, 
And there was a lot of potential at one point there, but then he had reached a level where he could probably he could probably do a very good job in a team that made the best out of his strengths, even in the championship. So I think they did very well to identify that kind of player in both Mario Vrancic and um, Moritz Leitner, another one who had been very highly touted alongside someone like Leonardo Bittencourt as a future Dortmund player around 2012-13, right? When they when they reached the championship final, yeah, those two were kind of the next youngsters uh, willing to break through. And again, for uh, for Leitner, it didn't quite didn't quite work out. But as we found out, it took Daniel Farker and their identification to bring in an undervalued player and turn him into a really, really good championship player and someone who could maybe perform at the lower end of the Premier League as well. So identifying that niche of players who might not be the guys that everyone would be competing for and who have been performing well on data, I think they did really well to kind of carve out a niche for themselves that way. And they they stuck to their principles, recruited a number of players on that principle, including Stephen and they've all done they've all done very, very well. And including Timo Puki, although uh, as Lee Johnson said, I'm sure his agent was uh, sending emails to every club in the championship, given Timo Puki actually had a decent season the year before he joined uh, Norwich. So that, that was probably less of a gamble, but, mm. but yes. So I think Identifying that that type of player and a, a huge part of the recruitment process is after identification, it's being able to take a risk on these players, right? Because, well, if you look at a player like Placetta, who we will talk about later, I assume, but I, I look at a player like that who has shown a recent surge in form and kind of burst out onto the scene and totally has like two seasons of senior football in him, one of which came at a pretty low level, which is the second division of Polish football. And uh, I mean, he's obviously different from someone who's kind of been around a bit like Leitner and Branchich and Superman. But at the end of the day, it boils down to, are you willing to take a risk on this player and weighing down the pros and cons effectively? And that's again, something that Stuart Weber and his team proved to do very well from 2017 to 19 or whatever it was. So I think, yeah, I really rate, I really rate the way they went about doing their business. And that in conjunction with giving the young players within the building a chance has obviously, it's done wonders for the asset building at the club. So there's, I don't really have a bad word to say about the recruitment. And I think last season, so when you talk about the Premier League recruitment, maybe people, I mean, I'm sure there would have been a lot of question marks given what there was a total spend of like, what, 5 million? Or, I mean, I'm not sure it was even that much because it was mostly just free transfers and loans, wasn't it? Patrick Roberts. The, the clear theme in last season's recruitment was players who hadn't been given a chance to prove themselves, but had lots of talent or had shown it previously. Like Patrick Roberts obviously had stormers at Celtic, but then at Girona, he was kind of kind of stagnating a bit. And Josep Dermic hadn't played a full season of Premier League, I mean, sorry, Bundesliga football since, what, 2016, 15, something like that. But he had shown to be decent and serviceable at that level. So he was brought in to be second choice here. So 
the whole, the, the, I, I mean, obviously, Weber has said this numerous times, but the crux of their recruitment last season was to ensure that the club, well, can preserve themselves financially in the situation that they go back down because they were kind of ahead of schedule in reaching the Premier League. So that way, I didn't take too much of a too much of a fault with their recruitment last summer. Maybe they could have been more ambitious, but then it could have easily not worked out. And they could have ended up like, you know, when you go around to the championship, you could either end up like Stoke or you could end up like maybe West Brom or maybe uh, Norwich might end up this season, which is in a decent place. Mm. So yeah, last season was, uh, they were, they were decent, decent purchases considering what they wanted to do. So bringing in someone like Sam Byram was probably smart business, right? Because if, uh, if you have Sam Byram in the championship, then he's probably going to do a very, very good job. So yeah, I didn't, I, I thought that, yeah, last season was kind of, kind of the free hit and which was kind of also based on a base of self-preservation and this summer's moves, which we will talk about, I suppose, are or have been very interesting. And yeah, there, there, there are a few themes there, which we will get to. But on the whole, since your question was on Stuart Weber and his team's body of work, I think it's been very, very good. There's no reason to fault it at all, even, even considering the fact that they've been through relegation. Because ultimately, as he said in his recent interviews, the club is in a much better position than when he took over. And financially, they're doing okay. They don't have to sell their best players. If they do, it'll be on their terms. And they will have enough resources to re-strengthen the squad. So, yeah, I have a lot of respect for the man. Mm. That's interesting. I just want to pick up on something you gave in your answer before that, which was about risk and, and the risk element of recruitment, I guess. Is, is the fact that uh, we can probably put all of the successful arm, uh, all the examples of Norwich City recruitment on, on one hand, but equally there's been plenty that haven't worked. I mean, we could talk about Marley Watkins, um, a few yeah. others you could throw into that category. Heiser, I guess. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Heiser is, is another good example. Yeah, is, is that just part of the, the fact of the, the markets they're shopping in, that the fact that it is quite sort of low risk, high reward, I guess, in, in the way that they recruit and, and the way they look for players given their financial situation, not that, not necessarily this summer, but certainly in the past where they have had to shop in markets for players that probably don't command that much for transfer fee. Yeah, always. And uh, it's, it's not to say that Schweider Bundesliga is of a lower standard to the championship. Like, I definitely don't think it's of a lower standard to the championship. But a lot of, um, a lot of what makes the transfer is if you're buying a player from a slightly lower team in the Schweider Bundesliga, which would be comparable to a slightly lower team in the championship is the added factor that comes with adjustment, adjustment from the Schweider Bundesliga or wherever to the Premier League, oh, sorry, to the championship. And the step up in intensity and physicality and the fact that there are 46 games a season plus cups to play, plus potentially playoffs. So it's crueling, it's intense and it's physical. So not every player is going to be able to make that step up as seamlessly as success stories have. So to be able to assess that is not easy at all. So obviously there are going to be players who might come in and depending on circumstances uh, might not be deemed as a success. So someone like Philip Heiss came in and he probably didn't have that many opportunities given Jamal Lewis's emergence, I suppose, and 
I'm not sure if he struggled with injuries. Did he struggle with injuries? Not, no, not not massively. I think I think you're right. It's okay. probably Jamal Lewis and, and yeah. other options. Um, but yeah. he, he's he's a he's he's a really intriguing example himself, and it, it's sort of <laughs> you brought him up because he's he signed a, a fairly long term contract and he's yet That's to play right. a single league game for for Norwich City. Yeah, yeah. So there, there there's him. Uh, he he's obviously he's obviously a decent player at the Schweizer Bundesliga level, but it's just uh, it's just the way things are sometimes that due to circumstances or due to the inability to transition, they did not work out. And there are transfers like Dennis Sabeni where he came in after an absolutely storming season in the third division of Germany with, with um, well, I think I've forgotten who it was with, maybe maybe Paderborn. But Paderborn, yeah. Paderborn, yeah. So he came to Norwich and he was kind of, what, second, third choice striker for a solid one and a half seasons, was it? And... Uh, one and a half or two and a half seasons, and it, it's like he he came in and he scored he scored go- goals here and there. He did a decent job, I suppose, as a player of his squad role would have been demanded. And he went back to he went back to Paderborn, didn't he, in January or where, whenever it was. And then he he didn't look very out of place uh, in the Bundesliga either. I think he he scored within like one game of going back there. And I'm pretty sure he'll he'll do okay in the Schweizer Bundesliga next season next season as well. So, yeah, it's just it's circumstances as well that plays play a big part in it. So, I, I wouldn't necessarily call Dennis Shabani a bad signing because ultimately I think he came in and served his purpose, and he was probably sold for at least as much as what he was bought for. So, that way it kind of worked out, and then overall there. There are always going to be ones that don't work out so much. There are going to be ones that work out a lot. But yeah, when you weigh up the body of work, it's been it's been really good. It's just part and parcel of how things are when you're recruiting a lot of players from foreign leagues. And given that, they've done very well. Yeah, I, I think there's um, perhaps a, a lot of people in football that maybe forget the human element of it as well. Coming from a, a yeah. country abroad and the fact you have to settle into a new culture and a new country, that that's something that doesn't really get discussed, does it? And you can you know, scout and, and recruit a player till the cows come home. But if, if their character isn't right and they get a bit homesick, then it, uh, it, it doesn't often work out. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant. Right, let's let's turn our sort of attentions to this window then. Um, before we sort of delve into the players individually, we, we spoke about trends earlier. Have you seen any sort of trends or perhaps shifts in Norwich City's recruitment this summer as opposed to what they've done before? One under Stuart Webber and, and two in the Championship. I guess the obvi- obvious one being probably that they've got a, a bit more money to play with this summer. <laughs> yeah, they have. And even considering that, I suppose they've been kind of restrained in terms of uh, you, you compare their spending to a club like maybe Fulham or West Brom that came down and it just uh, it, West Brom came down and splurged. They paid they paid a premium, I assume, or at least they agreed a premium fee for getting Matthias Pereira in from Sporting. I can only assume the same followed with Krovinovic, and they got Charlie Austin down. They paid a lot of money for Kenneth Zohr. 
Um, so it was a. Uh, I don't think you can say Norwich have been spending the same way. Fulham came in, down. In, in terms of Norwich, <laughs> it's, it's more money, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Norwich came down, and uh, sorry, Fulham came down, and they just they went all guns blazing, didn't they? They got uh, Knocker, they got Ivan Cavallero, Michael Hector signed for so much money. Although they were ultimately vindicated, but there's a chance that these things don't work out, and then you end up you end up being in a weird financial position where players want to move on, but they're on high wages or you can't sustain paying their wages because you don't have parachute payments. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of things that can go wrong. So considering how much clubs could spend after coming down from the championship, as I as I just elucidated upon, Norwich haven't... I'd still say that they've been somewhat restrained with their spending. But the clear change that I noticed from previous recruitment to now would probably be the fact that they are considering bringing in someone like Ben Gibson, and Jordan Hugel as well. So technically, these are players who fit the theme of haven't been given that much of an opportunity to perform in recent years or haven't performed at their parent club in recent years. Obviously, Hugel and Ben Gibson were picked up by Premier League teams around the same time by Burnley and West Ham, Claret and Blue Clubs, respectively. And... Neither of them have really pushed on since then in the sense that Hugel has obviously come back down and scored goals with Borough, scored goals with QPR. Ben Gibson has just kind of been sitting on the bench. But the good thing is it hasn't been that long since they were regular championship players. And we know that they can perform at this level. Ben Gibson has obviously been promoted from this league. He's been a been leader, very, very highly rated player before kind of sitting on the fringes uh, at Burnley. So in the sense, in that sense, they are going for players who have something to prove, who've kind of lost their sheen over the years, but also players who they know can perform at this level. So that's kind of a new trend, buying British-based talent to come in and be like a sure thing in the championship. And arguably, I'd say that's kind of what they need at this point as well. You're coming down, you might, you're in a situation where you might lose a lot of good young players. And you're in a situation where overall you don't have that much champion ex- championship experience in your side, apart from maybe one, one and a half seasons from the guys who took them up. So in that sense, if you're bringing in someone like Jordan Hugel, someone like Ben Gibson in for either loans or non-obscene fees, we're talking about like, what, 2.5, 2.7 million, it was on Hugel. And I would assume Gibson wouldn't be that costly as well, given his value has slightly deprecated uh, since Burnley signed him. So is that alone? Is Ben Gibson alone? Uh, well, yeah, it's. it's uh, I, th- I think they're exploring sort of all possibilities with that. I think they're, um, okay. they're they're definitely trying to get trying to get something done um, with, with Gibson. But I, I think they're open to probably probably both. Um, but I think the the permanent deal would certainly have to be on that on their terms, as kind of yeah, kind yeah. of in a similar vein to the Hugo one, I would imagine. Yeah. 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 So I like that. I like that they've they've uh, looked at looked at the squad and gone. We would like to we would like to go back up as soon as possible, despite the fact that we've done some impressive work at this club over the years. So something that could be very useful to the squad is players who have performed at the championship and are lower risk, so to speak. And someone like Ben Gibson adds a lot of leadership and robustness to the defense, which I felt could have been missing uh, last season. And in the championship as well, 
I felt as if Norwich's defense wasn't as much of, well, a tight-knit unit as maybe Chris Wilder's Sheffield United was, or even Marcelo Bielsa's Leeds was, despite the fact that Bielsa has only been there about a couple of years. So I, d- I did feel that Norwich had defensive deficiencies going into the Premier League, which were kind of badly exposed. But yeah, considering that, taking this, bringing this angle into their recruitment will, I think, prove to be beneficial. Hmm. Well, so that's, that is um, one thing. Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 take a look at um, Jordan Hugel in particular, because yeah, I, I think I think on on the surface of it, and he's obviously the most recent signing as well. Um, yeah, as as you mentioned, a, a fee that, that we certainly believe to be about two point seven million, certainly up front with add-ons and clauses as as Norwich deals tend to to be that could take it a bit closer to five million pounds. But on the surface, there are probably Norwich fans looking at this deal for Jordan Hugel and actually thinking, well, this is a different sort of striker, a different mould of striker than. Perhaps we or Norwich fans are used to in terms of you know Timmy Puki, who's, who's very technical, isn't the biggest, isn't the most physical, quite a clever, intelligent yeah, yeah. striker off the ball. Um, is is this signing probably a recognition that they need a bit more variety in in their striking options? Because Jordan Hugel obviously spent last year on loan at QPR, scored thirteen goals, and there's probably an argument to say for the value or the transfer fee that they've paid to get a, a championship striker that you say is is proven in terms of his goal output. Um, who scored 13 goals in this division last year. I mean, if, if you're looking at a, a fellow championship um, club who, who has a 13-goal striker on their books, you're probably paying a lot more than you do for, for Jordan Hugill. So is this one that they've sort of sniffed an opportunity, do you think, and, and have probably um, gone for it for that way? Or is it a specific sort of fit in terms of more variation into their attack and also the importance of having a, a plan B, which perhaps wasn't necessarily the case in the Premier League? Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a bit of both. You, I mean, I think back at the time Brit Sambalonga was sold to Middlesbrough from Nottingham Forest for about fifteen million pounds, and in terms of um, in terms of what we just said about having someone with a proven gold record in the championship, I think compared to that, it's good value. So that's one thing, and the other is yeah, I think it. It just could be about adding variety to the options of strikers you have available because obviously Puki has been there and done it in the championship. So, you know, you know he, he can do it, obviously, in the same style of play and everything. But I think it's it could be essential to equip yourself with a different option in terms of giving you the versatility to approach different games in different ways and setting up your team in a slightly different manner. Because one thing about Daniel Farker that, that stuck with me throughout the Premier League is he kind of stuck by his guns in terms of playing style for most of the season. So maybe there was, maybe there has been an air of Farker himself wanting to be a little more tactically flexible. So he has got in someone like Hugo who adds goals and he him along with Puki and along with Adam Ida they between them they cover basically every every kind of skill set you would want from your set of three strikers. So yeah that way that way the move makes a lot of sense and that, that's really the only way that I looked at the move. Because it, it's sensible. And he played in a QPR team that saw a decent amount of the ball last season, let's not forget. 
because uh, Mark, Mark Warburton's side was one that regularly housed a player like Barishi Eze and Ilias Cher, uh, Yuan Barbe, Brian Manning, all, all players who need a lot of the ball, uh, on whom ball progression or swift ball progression is of paramount importance, but also not, not aimlessly. So that kind of fits in with how Norwich want to play as well. So uh, the fact that Hugel has played in a team like that and he has scored despite being the type of striker that he is, which is by his own admission, he's a bit of a battering ram who's uh, not someone who likes to, I mean, likes to see as much of the ball as Timo Pukki and use it in the same way as him. So yeah, all things considered, I think there were a lot more pros than there were cons of signing Hugel. And from a statistical point of view as well, his um, his average, you know, expected goal per shot has been pretty good. Uh, it's just his uh, kind of finishing that has been varying either side of his expected goals in the last three seasons. But there's, a, there's every chance that he'll end up with a decent goal tally in a side that will create a lot of chances as well. Mm. I, I think what I was uh, going to ask about Hugo was... was and you've probably answered this to an extent, was those sort of what is his, his pros and his cons? Because like I say, you, you've described him aptly there as, as someone who's perceived as being a bit of a battering ram. But actually when I spoke to a, a QPR fan as, as is on the, the channel, sort of, uh, somewhere you can, you can find it uh, clicking on, on our channel page, uh, he, he essentially said that he isn't probably a natural finisher in perhaps the same way that Timu Puki is, maybe a bit rough around the edges. But yeah. as you said earlier on, probably a different type of striker to what Norwich City have and probably a different sort of striker, maybe the sort of striker you could argue that they probably needed a bit more last year. So in terms of his qualities and in terms of his strengths, what will he add to Norwich City, do you think? And then equally, what are the areas perhaps that he, he does need to improve? I know we've sort of identified finishing, but are there any other areas sort of, noticeable weaknesses from within his game from a statistical point of view from your perspective well i think i think he could do more with the ball i think at times he's unproductive when he receives possession i know it's not it may not be his job as someone who's played like a kind of target man or a mobile target man but i feel as if even even if he comes into the norwich side as a target man he'll have to be He'll have to be someone who's more mobile, kind of kind of a floating focal point. So in that sense, I think productiveness in pr- productivity, and I'm just making up my own notes today, aren't I? So productivity in build-up is uh, probably the area of his that would need most improvement apart from consistency of finishing, I'd say. So yeah, that, that's probably the one thing. Hmm. Interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm going to... Um... Think categorize this into the domestic size. That seems to make sense before we go on to probably the ones that are a bit more obscure. So um, Kieran Dow, someone who's, who's coming from Everton. Again, another one that you probably put in the mould of, I guess, championship experience, even though he's only 22. Yeah. He's had a lot of yeah. loans, hasn't he, in this division, most recently with Wigan, which was very successful. But then one before with Derby that perhaps wasn't as successful. What, what do you make of Kieran Dow as a player and how do you see him fitting into to the current Norwich City setup? Yeah, Um Actually, apologies for not mentioning him before because he very much fits that mold of having a good amount of championship experience. He's been at three clubs now, Nottingham Forest, four clubs, Nottingham Forest, Sheffield United, um, Derby County, and Wayne Athletic. And he's, he's played a, he's, he's played kind of kind of different roles for, I mean, among among his four spells. And he's he's also had like 
mixed levels of success. But I think the main thing they've looked at is he is someone with who once was touted as having massive potential the same way Moritz Leitner was at Dortmund. Because Dowell was very, very highly rated as part of that same group of players coming through, like John Joe Kenny. And, uh, he was doing very well uh, for the English youth teams as well, along with like Calvert Lewin and Tom Davis, Adam Lookman, a bunch. But Dowell hasn't quite pushed on from there. Uh, I think the reason being, he's uh, not really had consistent loan spells where he's been played to his strengths. And I think that's something that he actually kind of got at Wigan, funnily enough, given the given the state they were in. So I think that he is kind of undervalued in the sense that his time was definitely up at Everton. Uh, his championship stock wasn't that high because he had a good half season at Wigan. He had a he had like a good six months with Nottingham Forest in 2017 before kind of tailing off at the end of the season. And Derby and Sheffield and I was like so so. Derby Derby didn't go very well. Uh, you can take it from me. Uh, but yes, I think Dowell would add a lot of technical prowess in terms of what he would add with his passing ability. Uh, this is something I've looked into with a slightly more advanced metric named expect, expected threat as well. Something I've been looking at recently, which basically measures, um, basically rewards players for moving the ball into dangerous areas, regardless of what the recipient of these passes does with it. So basically, if a player passes into or dribbles into a dangerous area from which it is likely that a goal may be scored or an assist may be provided, Dowell ranks pretty highly on that in his times at Nottingham Forest and Wigan Athletic as well. So you're getting you're getting someone of a similar ball progression profile as maybe Steeperman in terms of the fact that he can easily play in the middle of a front three, I um, mean, attacking band behind the striker. And he could kind of play a drifting role on the left, as I think Steeperman has done in the past, uh, which, which is slightly slightly narrower. So kind of kind of asymmetrical in terms of how, how you might set the front three up if there's someone like Hernandez or Placetta on the other side. But yeah, uh, he he's a very, very solid option that could, I think, greatly benefit in a side that sees as much of the ball as Nottage does and plays him to his strengths. So that way, I think it is an astute purchase, given it probably didn't cost that much either. Mm-hmm. So I rate that signing. I rate it because it's undervalued. And I, I don't necessarily see him starting every game, but I think he will make valuable contributions as and when he does. So... At the very least, I think he will prove to be a reliable squad member in a season where you know contributions from everyone are going to be quite important. Mm, this this was a question I was going to ask you about Kieran Down. You mentioned sort of his, his capability of playing as a, a number ten, that, that role behind the striker. There's yeah. been a, a sort of a little bit of scepticism as, as to perhaps where his best position is. Is it an eight? Is it a ten? Um, it, it sounds from your perspective like you see it as a number ten. That's that's a sort yeah, of area of the pitch that Norwich City really struggled with last year. With, Yes. Both Marco Stiefman and Andre Duda, when he came in on loan, probably didn't um, contribute as Daniel Farquhar and as Norwich City would hope. Yeah. Do you see Kieran yeah. Dow offering a, a real sort of different alternative to those two players in that number 10 position? Yes, I, I, I suppose so. Although one would argue that Marco Stiefman was actually quite good at championship level. It's just, I feel like he really struggled with the step up to the Premier League. 
mm. due to whatever reason. But I think coming back down, if Marcus Tiefelman has kept around, which it seems like he will be, um, you automatically have a pretty good option to play there. Or, or someone who could switch, uh, kind of play like a fluid role moving, switching between that and the left. So I think between him and Dowell and probably Sanani as well, you have a group of players who could, again, cover a range of skills at number 10 that could prove to be quite useful. So yes, I do agree with you in the sense that Dowell's, I, I think Dowell's best position is as a 10. So I think I think it, it will be between him and Superman to take that position by the reins. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I, I'll ask you now about uh, Ollie Skip, of course, on, on loan from Spurs. Very highly rated midfielder, England under-21 international, was sort of on the cusp of the Spurs first-team squad. Jose Mourinho has described him as a, a future Tottenham captain. What, what do you make of him? Because I saw a little bit of him in, in the friendly against Dynamo Dresden, and he just seemed to have a, a tenacity, a bit of a bite that perhaps Norwich City lacked last season. Maybe a borderline in terms of the uh, he got booked, and it, it looked like um, he was probably a tackle away from a red card at times. I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> maybe maybe a bit too aggressive. But what, what do you make of him as a footballer? Because he he, he looks like someone who combines probably Alex Tetty's sort of positives and his sort of defensive capabilities which Norwich City without Alex Tetti in the side certainly in that midfield looked very open and very exposed with perhaps someone like I don't know Tom Tribal off the top of my head who's probably a bit more progressive in terms of passing he seems to sort of combine the two but like I said I've only seen him for 45 minutes so I'm, I'm, I might be sort of going going a bit too big on him but I, I'm sure you can probably provide a, a better analysis in terms of his statistical game and what he's like as a player. Yeah um, statistically speaking to be, to be fair, your guess is probably as good as mine because he hasn't played enough games uh, to even have a decent sample size of statistics to judge. So how I think the workings of this transfer would have been was I think Norwich clearly identified the fact that they needed someone who was a bit nasty at the base of midfield and also had decent technical ability and also kind of possessed these leadership intangibles that Jose Mourinho talked about which is why I think that they also targeted Ethan Ampadu at one stage, because I think I remember Michael Bailey reporting that Ampadu was a target. And I think Ampadu wants a chance to prove himself with Chelsea, which is why maybe this deal didn't go through. But I, I think that they would have considered Ampadu and Skip as alternatives for the same role in the squad, because Ampadu fits almost the same profile insofar as being someone who can win back a lot of balls in midfield and who has a very, very decent range of passing on him as well, and who is quite vocal on the pitch, and someone who could, I could tout him, but I could tout Amparu to be a future Chelsea captain, with, without doubt. So if it's that intangible personality that you're speaking about, combined with those qualities on the pitch, and I mean, n- neither of them is a physical specimen, right? Skip isn't very tall or very bulky. Neither is Amparu, but they both got this intensity to their play, um, they both got a level of tenacity combined with technical prowess that I think Norwich correctly identified as a gap in their squad. So I I love the signing of Oliver Skip personally. I think that I think he looked quite good in the FA Cup game that he played against you guys. And whenever I watched him, I've been impressed because there's clearly a very good player in there. 
but he just hasn't been afforded enough opportunities because I think because of the fact that Jose Mourinho functions in a certain way at Tottenham. So yeah, Walker Peters left, Parrot went out on loan, Skip had to go out on loan at this point. He had to play. So yeah, I I love the signing to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think he adds a lot of what a lot of what Norwich were lacking. And he's obviously developing, has excellent pedigree, has played games in the Premier League. Uh, so really, what's not to like? I think it's an excellent signing. Mm, we've we've heard um, Stuart Webber talk before about this in terms of loan additions. And um, I, you just got me thinking there in terms of what you were saying. Um, and, and this deal generally is interesting because I remember him distinctly saying that the only time we'll sort of look to bring in a loan option, particularly from sort of the, the big clubs, because obviously Norwich would rather develop their own talent perhaps than someone else's, is if they've got a player in that position that perhaps they've earmarked for a few years' time as being a first-team option. So just to sort of fill that gap. And uh, this is where I think maybe about Melvin City, who obviously joined in, in January from, from the French League. Um, hmm. is, is he someone that, that you think could fill that role? Judging by that sort of noise, I'm, I'm guessing maybe not. But... Is that sort of what you, what you get the impression with this skip signing, that he is sort of there for a year in order to allow someone else to develop or, or maybe someone else online? Well, in terms of uh, similarity to Oliver Skip, from what I've watched of Melbourne City, he seems to be kind of different to Skip. So I watched uh, a lot of City going from the time he made his debut for Social, because he was born like we within Market Insights earmarked as someone who could have a lot of potential. So that was a, that was a kind of difficult one to assess because City kind of, um, he drifted in and out of games. He didn't assert himself the same way as Skip did or Skip does. And he seemed of someone who was was active off the ball in that sense, or could maybe show more, or perhaps showed more prowess in carrying the ball and playing more of a direct game than skip. So I'm not sure that they are players of the same mold. Although I think that if City were to work on certain aspects of his game, if, for example, in the next season, if he were loaned out because... I'd be surprised if he played a role at Norwich this season. If he if he were loaned out, he played with he played for a team with slightly more of the ball, learned to assert himself a little more, and th- then then maybe yes, it makes sense that he is the one that they are kind of grooming for that role because I think physically he has he has the capabilities. Um, it's just he I feel as if he he has a lot more refinement left to do in terms of where he is and in terms of where Skip is. So that way it could be one. But the way I was kind of looking at it was um, Sorensen is maybe the one that could eventually take over Skip's role inside. Because he's a... Lungi Sorensen is a, he's a kind of interesting player because he's been used in a number of roles where, I mean, he's played as a kind of kind of deeper midfielder for... Uh, at, can't pronounce his team's name correctly, but uh, <laughs> I'm just going to refer to it as his team. So, as es- Esbjerg, I mean, I'm not sure if that's correct. That's pretty yeah. close. I mean, that's pretty close. Yeah. So, 
when I when I watch Sorensen, he's at times he's played this kind of midfield role where he drifts wide a lot, with someone playing a sitting role instead, and he actually has like a better range of passing than people might give him credit for, because he has the the ability to play some very nice progressive passes, and thread through some nice through balls for you know on rushing fullbacks or attackers into those wide channels. He can distribute it out wide well. And he he's actually quite good off the ball. He's got that streak in him that would, I think, in the future allow him to be an effective ball winner. So in that sense, uh, Sorensen could be someone who initially plays like on a second fiddle to skip, assuming you have someone like uh, Kenny McLean on the other end of the double pivot, or Mario Vrancic, or maybe, I don't know, Alec. I'm not sure if they play a pivot of Tete and Skip, but yeah, you catch my drift. Um, I'm thinking someone like Sorensen would come in and maybe not start every game immediately. Maybe let Skip uh, take that role and then probably transition Sorensen to a starting role in a year's time when when Skip goes back. So that's kind of the way kind of the way I see it. Mm. Uh, that's uh, yeah that's that's interesting um it seems like a, an apt time to sort of move on to the the foreign recruits i guess the the exports from abroad that perhaps norwich fans and 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 um well yeah norwich fans won't be as familiar with uh we, we sort of touched upon uh Sorensen there so i think we'll, we'll probably leave him for now but uh primishav poeta which is a name that i've, I've desperately been practicing i, I think that's I'm, how you pronounce it i think i'm getting <laughs> okay. a little bit better I think i'm getting a little bit better <laughs> Um, but obviously, left winger from, from the Polish first division. That's that's a very that screams a, a Stuart Weber signing for for Norwich City fans who, who have seen perhaps talent come in from abroad. What, what do you make of him? Because the reports that we sort of had from Poland is someone that's that's very very quick, very very quick. Which again is is maybe beyond Donel Hernandez, something that Norwich City have really lacked in their attack. But combined with the signing of Hugill, does that suggest that Norwich City might go for? perhaps more conventional wingers in, in, as opposed to sort of these inverted sort of number 10s that they've been playing sort of in Buendia and Campwell. Do you, do you see that now being an option or, or again, are we talking about variation in, in the same way we were with, with Hugo? Well, I think Placeta is not the same. He's not the same type of player as any Buendia in the sense that I think Buendia likes to see a lot more of the ball. And... He kind of he kind of likes. I mean, I would say Buendia is probably more proficient in building up moves. But where I'd see Placetta's main difference in that is he is more of a direct attacker, so to speak. So he's um I, I haven't I haven't watched him and found him to be one for much ball retention. So I've seen him I've seen him make some neat combinations with his right back in terms of, you know, one-touch given goes. But largely, I, I see him as someone who tries to penetrate into the final third in a very direct manner most most of the time. So his, his kind of ball usage was quite high in Poland. So he doesn't necessarily have to see a lot of the ball, but when he does see the ball, he will, he will try to be as best a direct attack as he can. And obviously, certain physical capabilities that he has, obviously I'm talking about his pace, and is he has a strong running capability. So I would liken that most to maybe Onel Hernandez with um, 
I'd see Ronald Hernandez as slightly less direct uh, than Placeta, but the most comparable option to what Norwich City have in their squad. So Placeta adds a lot of running from deep as well as in behind. Lovely pace, strong runner. He's got a decent physical profile in the sense that uh, he's, he's, not, he's not very tall or anything, but in terms of build and athleticism and, you know, the general intensity of play that we talked about, I think I think he would fit the bill, maybe if not initially over the course of the season. He might need a betting in period. But, uh, yes, in terms of general physical traits, I think they, they have done well to identify a player who could transition to the championship. And he would probably provide a different option from from Buendia. So probably you have you have Hernandez and Placeta as a as a type of attacker in your front three. Then you have you have Dowell and you have Buendia and you have Stieperman. Obviously Buendia is slightly different slightly different from, from Dowell and Stieperman, but loosely you got what I'm talking about. So as someone to bring on late in games to start out with, I think Placeta is probably a brilliant option. I like um I like the fact that he has really good shape on his deliveries as well. And for someone who is uh, said to be a left-footed player, he has pretty decent uh, delivery with his right footer as well. He doesn't he doesn't just use his right foot to get on the bus. So I, I like that a lot about him. So yeah, he offers goal threat, offers a lot of direct penetration into the final third. So yeah, I like the signing for a lot of reasons. But... Uh, the funny thing with Placeta is he wasn't a statistical standout for large parts of the season because, I mean, trust me, we were monitoring uh, extra class of data for like like every week, every week of the season. And Placeta wasn't the obvious, obvious one to really take a hold of until maybe late February or definitely until 2020 because his goal return absolutely skyrocketed after February and uh, after lockdown. So, that, I mean, that, that's, it is good to know that Norwich were, you know, monitoring their market very, very closely because, yeah, his, his data was brilliant in the one season he spent in the second division of Poland. But when he made that step up to the first division, his data was like, it was okay. It was, it was decent considering he was playing for, uh, you know, not one of the top teams. And he was doing all right, but he didn't strike me as a signing that Norwich City would make. Uh, but yeah, I think he does have the potential to kind of bed in and become an effective player over the course of the season. Hmm. That's that's really interesting. And now I want to come on to the one that I certainly find the most interesting because I think it's it's been interesting just how little sort of everyone know, knows or, or how little they know of him, which is, which is Danel Sonani. Now, he was obviously playing in, in the Luxembourg division, wasn't he? First division for, for FC yeah. Dulange. Um, it's, it's as obscure as they come, I think, this one. Free transfer. Someone who I think Stuart Weber has, has talked about in terms of how his performances in the Europa League and them identifying that particular set of data as being quite impressive and yes. transferable to, to the championship. What do you make of Daniel Sonani? And, and equally, where do you think he's, he's best suited to being on the pitch? Because we've, we've seen him 
<laughs> in the opening sort of few friendlies, play on the wing, play a, a, as a striker. Where for you do, do you think he, he fits in? Well, Sinani is um, is a very interesting one because, for one, there is no data available on Luxembourg. Uh, that I mean, maybe there's like something on Instat, but on on Wisecout, which is what I mean, we use and a lot of people use. There was uh, no data on the Luxembourg league, and I'm I'm sure that even if there were he would have looked like Lionel Messi of Luxembourg because his, uh, his return in that league is absolutely insane. And I think he was playing for probably the best team in the league as well. But his Europa League data is actually very decent. Um, and he's a player that we as a company looked at um, around maybe November, December-ish after Tudelang had played their Europa League group games. And uh, I think, I mean, don't get me wrong, is um, Norwich obviously did a really good job to identify him and take a chance on a player like that. But uh, it was kind of a, I feel as if it was a kind of bookie-ish situation where um, the agent was doing a job of notifying a lot of clubs in the championship about his availability and the fact that he's... um, played in the Europa League. I mean, it's, it's, it's not really that much of a reach, you know, because it's just the way it works with agents because when a player is, avail- is available like that and has done well in the Europa League, he is going to be shopped around to probably every team in the championship or at least being made aware of. But the fact of the matter is not all of them are going to look into him as deeply as Norwich have done. And, in, and as far as that goes, they've obviously done a very good job now. As uh, as far as it goes with his style of play, etc., he is a very very interesting player, and his data in the Europa League was actually actually very good in 2019-20. Uh, slightly less so in 18-19, but then yeah, the sample size in 19-20 was kind of double to what it was in 18-19 because they actually made the group stage from there, and they played against very decent teams like Sevilla. Mm. And I watched uh, I watched both his games against Sevilla back then. I was actually left quite impressed because I he didn't he didn't look out of place at that level at all. I mean, I'm not sure how seriously Sevilla were taking that game or whether they were through at that point. But they did have some they they had some decent players on the pitch at the time, and Serrani didn't look out of place at all. And he actually struck me as someone with a very good all-round skill set, and I think that's why he's been used in a number of roles in his career because. Uh, I know that for Luxembourg, he's played as a central midfielder as well as a 10 and a striker. And uh, as you said, for Norwich, um, he's being used on either wing as well. So, yeah, in, in in that sense, I feel as if it was it was a good option in terms of being low risk because they got him on a pre-contract in there. So he was very low risk and potentially very high return. Because you watch a player who's been playing in the Luxembourg League all season, and then he goes he goes and plays against Sevilla and actually looks quite decent. Um, then that's someone you're going to want to look much more into detail. So he likes to see he likes to see a lot of the ball. So he averaged almost 40 passes a game in the Europa League, and playing against well, apart from qualifiers, playing against mostly superior sides, that's probably not a very common thing. 
right? Especially for someone who's playing as a 10 slash striker. So he's someone who I watched drop deep a lot to get the ball when he was playing uh, these two games against Sevilla. He liked to have the ball. He would easily drop into wide channels, drop deeper towards the half line almost, and actually has a very decent range of passing as well, which is why, which is why he's been played as a midfielder for his, for his country or, or probably due to long as well. So he, he kind of possesses that uncanny skill set where he has like this good range of passing and movement and willingness to want the ball. And in terms of finishing as well, he's, 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 he's fine. He gets into good scoring positions. Uh, I've seen this and the expected goals reflects that as well. His finishing in the Europa League at least has been good. In Luxembourg, obviously, it's been amazing. And, well, what else? He's, uh, yeah, I noticed that he was fairly active off the ball as well. So that might tie into the fact that Norwich would like someone who, uh, you know, kind of enables the Keegan pressing game. So in, in terms of fit, he actually ticks a lot of boxes, you know, in terms of an attacker who likes to have the ball, who can switch in terms of, he can probably interchange within games, uh, start out on the left and then drift into that central role during the game and maybe interchange with the striker if needed so that that is conducive to fluid attacking play. So yeah, I actually like the signing in terms of the fact that it was low risk um, high potential return and kind of taking a gamble in terms of where he's played a lot of his football. But watching him against uh, Sevilla in the Europa League, it kind of, kind of, kind of alerted me to the fact that he was a good player. So yeah, I like a lot of things about that purchase. Although I'm kind of, so I suppose he's, I see him best as a number ten given a skill set. So that kind of, kind of makes me think about where Norwich see Steeperman playing overall or where they, how much they see Sinani playing overall because you've kind of got three players, uh, excluding Buendia, you've kind of got three players who can fill the number 10 role quite easily. So that's Steeperman, Dowell and, and Sinani. So that's, I'm, I'm not quite sure how they might address that problem. I'm thinking they might have Sinani and Dowell as the two predominant 10 options. Um, or maybe Sinani is more of a you know general purpose guy who drifts uh, among all three options and is not really, really designated to any one of them. So yeah, that, that's kind of interesting and kind of hard to predict. But yeah, I've, uh, there are a lot of things I like about the signing. Mm, that's, that's fascinating. Um, that's, that's probably the most insight I've, I've, I've been able to get on Sinani actually, because as you said, it's fascinating that I, I certainly didn't know that there was no data available for Luxembourg. So that's, <laughs> um, that makes it even more intriguing, I think, that signing. Um, just finally then, uh, before we let you go, because I'm aware we've taken up quite, quite a lot of your time, um, Xavi Quintilla joined on loan from Villarreal. He, I think he made 19 appearances in the La Liga off, off the top of my head. So certainly in terms of pedigree, he looks at a fairly decent loan option. But what do, what do you make of him as a signing? Is, is he a different type of left-back to Jamal Lewis, for example? Because we saw certainly... Um, in Nuru City's title-winning season, they like to play their fullbacks very high, and certainly yes. the, the sort of initial reports from Spain is he is someone who is is quite offensively minded in the way that he plays. Is is that something you you agree with? Yes, that is something I would agree with because um, I watched a few of Quintilla's uh, recent games, 
And I noticed that he was someone who was very, very quick in transition from defense to attack in the sense that he would often receive a sequence of possession from his center backs, laid off to a slightly more central attacker or a midfielder. And he would absolutely bomb down the left wing and look to receive in high positions and kind of stay there. So I wouldn't say that's too different from what Norwich City want out of their fullbacks. So he he didn't... Um, so in the La Liga, at least, he didn't look to take on players or, you know, carry the ball through the flanks, taking on guys the same way as uh, Jamal Lewis did. Um, I mean, I love I love Jamal Lewis's carrying ability. I think it's it's the best thing about his game. And in that sense, I didn't I didn't see Kintia doing as much of this in La Liga, although concessions should be made about the level he was playing at. Uh, so he may not have had the confidence to do that at the La Liga level. So, in to- but in terms of you know willingness to get forward and pace. And transition, as I spoke about, he very much fits the bill in terms of someone who will bomb forward at every opportunity and look to kind of sustain possession in the final third and, uh, if required, recycle possession over there, sustain and uh, alternatively deliver good crosses into the penalty area. So that's what I made of Quincy looking at his La Liga appearances. But... His data from the second B division, which is where he played a lot of minutes for uh, Villarreal's reserve side, is amazing. He looks um, he looks very very good. Looks like exactly the kind of profile. If I just saw his data profile today without watching him, then I'd say that's a very close fit to what Norwich would want from Jamal Lewis and uh, Max Ahrens, although. I will say that he he did carry the ball a lot uh, in his time in Segunda B, but he didn't take on many, many people one-on-one the way Jamal Lewis would do. So I think maybe, maybe just maybe, Norwich might be looking to place more of an emphasis on, you know, threat added in attack, fireball progression in passing as well. Because when I think back to Max Ahrens and Jamal Lewis's um, seasons in the championship where they broke out, you know, most of their dangerous attacking play came via them carrying the ball into dangerous attacking areas. And this is something that is checked out by the statistics as well. So they added a lot more threat to Norwich's attacks in 2018-19 by carrying. It was statistically one of, the, one of the best seasons any fullback has had in the championship you know, in terms of adding threat to attacks via carrying the ball, via dribbling. So in terms of that, so, but but on the other hand, there wasn't that much emphasis on them adding threat via, you know, forward progressive passing. So that may be something that Norwich have a new emphasis on in terms of what kind of fullbacks they're looking to recruit because Sam McCallum is obviously the guy they've earmarked for this position in the future, and I love him. Amazing left back. I think he could. He would have stepped up to the championship at like January, uh, beginning of the year. I think he's very good, and he's someone who is obviously athletic and a good carrier of the ball. 
But McCallum, again, is someone who added more, carry, more, uh, more threat to attacks via passing than carrying. So in that sense, McCallum was slightly different from, uh, from Lewis. He also played in a system that required more threat via passing, which is something reflected in commentary today as well. But yeah, Quintilla is not, he's, he's, I mean, at least what, from what I've seen and statistically, he's not like an aggressive dribbler, although he does like to progress unopposed, if that makes sense. And yeah, so in that sense, he might be, that's where the differences would lie between him and Jamal Lewis. So yeah, I think, I think that's, the, that's the ins and outs of it. He's a, he's a good progressive passer, not an aggressive dribbler, but uh, quick, very, very willing to go forward and probably quite good, will be proved to be quite good at sustaining possession uh, further above, I mean, further up the opposition pitch, considering you don't want to concede many turnovers given how not a city player. Ram, it's been an absolutely fascinating hour or so of chat. I, I really appreciate your time and your insight. It's been uh, really interesting to sort of get the lowdown and, and, and some really good analysis on, on Norwich City's new recruits. So thank you very much for, for joining me. Uh, thank you very much for watching and, and listening. If you are listening to this as a podcast, um, if you could leave us a review and, and uh, subscribe to the pod as well, that would be much appreciated. And if you're watching this on YouTube, then uh, make sure you like the video if you enjoyed it and also uh, subscribe to the channel. I'll leave all of Ram's links in, in the description below and you can check out his, his brilliant Twitter profile and uh, leave a link to, to his website as well um, because they, they, they certainly do some great work Ram thank you very much thank you all very much stay safe Pleasure. and uh, we'll see you all again very very soon thank all you right, see you.